good morning to all of you. This is uh, uh, my last sermon for a while on the subject of the church. Um, I talked a little bit about prayer and the apostles' doctrine, and um, and uh, we're going to come today um, to the power of the church. So I don't know if this seems appropriate or not. Um, I've not heard a lot of sermons preached on this subject. Uh, maybe it's because we're not charismatic enough. It seems like some people are really into um, the work of the Spirit and the, the manifestations. I will be shocked if anybody gets up and starts dancing in the aisles or jumps over chairs or anything like that this morning. In fact, probably nobody would pay attention to the sermon if that happened. Um, so it's okay if you do. I'm not going to stop you. Um, as a way of beginning... I wanted to go back in time to the year 1075. So how many of you all remember 1075? Not many. It's a good year, I hear. Yeah, no, even the oldest people here probably don't remember it. My mom wasn't even born. So, so obviously I wasn't either. So the Pope was in, char in charge of the Catholic Church at that time was Pope Gregory VII. Um, and the most powerful leader in Europe at that time was Henry IV. He was the ruler of the Holy Roman Empire, which wasn't particularly holy, nor was it founded in Rome. So I don't know how it got its name, but um, regardless, it was the Holy Roman Empire. And I think they thought of themselves as that probably because um, they were the, the, um, um, the inheritors of the, the previous Roman Empire, so that, which was, of course, people know about that. So, in the past, the Holy Roman Emperor had been able to choose who became a priest, who became head of monasteries, and things like that. And so, um, Pope Gregory said, you know what, I think that's the Pope's job to choose who becomes a bishop. The Pope is going to choose who becomes priests, and all those kinds of things were the people who are under him. And... Um, and um, so this was kind of a point of tension, you can imagine. Uh, I don't know which sounds better to you. Unfortunately, the problem is that these were offices that were sold. So, you know, you can imagine if the um, person who became a minister at um, Bethel Mennonite Church had to pay money to become minister here. And, you know, he paid, you know, I, I don't imagine it would be a lot of money. But anyway, you know, $1,200, say, and you could become a minister here, um, you know, and they had a bid for it. And so, unfortunately, the people who became priests and bishops weren't necessarily um, very spiritual people. They were just wealthy people. So, this conflict rose to the point where Henry arrested the Pope while he was giving Mass and took him off to jail. So, Gregory VII's Pope is in jail. And um, the supporters of the Pope broke into the jail and pulled him out of prison. And um, so the Pope at this point excommunicated Henry IV. And he said to Henry IV, you know what? Not only do I excommunicate you, but if you do not repent in one year, this excommunication is for all of eternity. Because the Pope could do things like that back then. Um, and we'd hesitate to do that today, probably. So Henry began to feel the pressure on him from the Pope's political power. And so it was that in January of the year 1077, he decided to make a dangerous journey through the Alps in the middle of winter to reach 
a castle in Canossa where the Pope was staying. And so he's made this journey. And when he reached the castle of Matilda, the Pope refused him admittance. And instead, Henry had to remain outside in a terrible snowstorm with his wife and young son for three days until the Pope finally admitted him, listened to him, and reversed the excommunication. And many people believe this was the height of spiritual power in the Middle Ages. This was when the church was most powerful, when all of the Christian rulers in Europe had to listen to what the Pope said. And if we're honest, I think there are a lot of Christians today who would like to have this power back. They would look at the world around and they say, you know, if we had control, if we could tell the political people what to do, we could do a lot of good in this world. And if I'm honest, this was the low point of spiritual power for the church in all of history. And we're going to kind of explore why. So let's turn to Matthew chapter 16. We're going to read verses 13 through 19. When Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? So they said, Some say John the Baptist, some Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered and said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered and said to them, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. So there are two questions here. The first one is, who do people say that I am? And then the second one, who do you say that I am? The first one is probably the easier question. The disciples answer it, repeating what they'd heard. Prophets, you know, I'm not sure where Jeremiah comes up. You know, he seems like not the prophet I'd bring up. You know, Elijah is the one that was foretold he would come again. But anyway, I, I don't think the Jews in that day believed in reincarnation. But somehow they, they had this idea that one of the, one of the major prophets from, from the Old Testament come back. The second question is more challenging, most of all because it was risky. They knew that identifying Jesus as a good man was the safest thing to do, and yet there was something more that they had seen as they observed his ministry. Jesus wasn't just a good man. He wasn't a good philosopher. He wasn't even a, a great rabbi. And so Peter came right out, and he said, you are the Messiah. You are the anointed one. You're the, you're the fulfillment of all those prophecies from the Old Testament. And more than that, you are the Son of God. You are divine. And we understand that. I think all of us this morning believe that. We believe that Jesus is the fulfillment of Scripture. He is the point at which all of the Bible points, whether it's pointing forward in the Old Testament or centered around in the New Testament. But the second part is the hard part. What is Jesus talking about here, about building his church on, on, on this rock? So first of all, he renames Peter. 
in greek the name for stone and peter are almost exactly the same word if if you speak spanish you know that that the word for stone is piedra and the word for peter's pedro and you can hear the similarity in those in in french it's exactly the same pierre and pierre i don't know how you tell the difference except just by context rock and rock so jesus goes on to say that on this larger stone a boulder large mouth mass of stone um, different from the word um, for rock that he used for peter he would build his church his ecclesia his assembly and of course the catholic church has interpreted this as meaning that the church was built on peter and all those bishops that come in direct succession to peter and so they can list all the popes from the time of peter all the way to the present, um, Pope Francis, whatever. So, but what does the boulder talk about? What is this large stone? Um, of course, it could be just a reference to Jesus himself. We know that in Scripture, he talked about himself as the stone which the builders rejected, um, that has become the head of the corner. That's in Matthew 21:42, And Paul said that other foundation can no man lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. So if we said, you know, this this boulder which Jesus is talking about is the rock of ages. It's Jesus. And and he is going to build his church on himself and on his teachings. That's probably a a safe thing to say. Um, But the other possibility is that this boulder is referring to the faith which Peter showed in Jesus. The, The church is founded upon an enduring trust in Jesus as the Son of God, the Messiah. But moving on, we're going to talk about power this morning. And Jesus identifies three things um, that, um, that the church is powerful in. And we're going to touch on each one of these. Um, he says that the gates of Hades will not prevail against us. Um, and he talks about loosing and binding. So, the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. And, and the King James Version uses the word hell. And I, I think maybe that gets us on a wrong track whenever we read this. Because, you know, we, we think about um, the church having power over Satan's kingdom. And I don't think that's what Jesus is getting at here. He is telling his apostles, his followers, the church will not fear death in the way that people outside the church do. And as a result, they will behave differently. And this doesn't mean as much to us today as what it did back then. Because when you have illnesses that you have no antibiotics to treat, and no treatment for at all, and you say, what do you do in response to that illness? Do you stay in town or do you flee? If you're a Christian, you say, you know what? I love Jesus. And the gates of death did not prevail against him, and they will not prevail against me. He will walk with me even if I die while I take care of these sick people. It makes a difference. If you say, you know, the gates of death fell to him, I am willing to die for my faith. That makes a difference. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 55 through 57 says, O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. 
And I've said several times as I looked at the church that when people receive salvation, they are saved not just from sin. They are saved into community. They are saved into a family, a different family from the one that they're born in. But it is a family of people who do not fear death. The plague of Cyprian was named after a bishop in North Africa. It happened in the early 200s. And it is interesting to read about this. This was something that just devastated the Roman Empire. And when you look at what the Romans, the, the, the non-Christian Romans did in response to this, they fled. Even the great physician Galen uh, did not stick around in any of the city areas. He separated himself out because he was afraid of catching this plague. Nobody knows what it was. It was some kind of a hemorrhagic fever. But the church grew because it was clear that the Christians were not afraid to die. They stayed. They took care of their own people. They took care of the people around them. Whereas most of the people, when they had a family member who got this, they, they just fled. They would not have anything to do with them. And so this is just in, in clear uh, just clearly shows what that did for the early church. And as a result, the church grew. People wanted to be associated with fearless people. The last thing I'll mention, just as kind of a way of introduction, is that the power of church comes from Jesus. Regardless of what that boulder is that, that the church is built on, we have power because of the one who is leading us. John 14, 12 through 14, Jesus said, Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the, the works that I do, he will do also. And greater works than these will he do, because I go to my Father. And whatsoever you ask in my name, that will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. So what are these greater things that Jesus is talking about? Um, and I think it's clear that he's talking about this in the context of giving us the Holy Spirit. So that's what John 14 is all about. He's saying, you people will receive something that no one in history has received before. You are going to receive the Holy Spirit. And as a result, you are going to build something that the church has never seen. So in the book of Daniel, there is a big statue that King Nebuchadnezzar dreams about. You'll remember that. And it had a head of gold and goes down through silver and iron and different kinds of things. And then there's a stone that is carved out of the mountain, not made with hands, that destroys the statue. And we would see that stone as the church. And that destruction happens because of the power of the church. So what do we think about the power and works of the Spirit? So at the beginning of the 20th century, a church movement began growing out of the Holiness Church group. Um, these people um, believed that those who were indwelled with the Holy Spirit should manifest this um, by speaking in tongues. And these tongues were unknown tongues. 
That is to say that no one without this spiritual gift could understand them. It wasn't that the Spirit was giving them um, like some kind of Rosetta Stone ability where they could just like walk into a room with someone who spoke Russian or spoke um, Portuguese or um, Swahili and they could just understand them. Instead, they claimed to be speaking with the tongues of angels, which sounds pretty highfalutin if you ask me. Um, I'd like to be able to speak that, although it probably wouldn't be useful. There's some other languages that would be more useful. So if you read in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, he starts off saying, if I speak with the tongues of men and of angels. So, and he says, you know, 1 Corinthians 13 is a description of a spiritual gift, right? He's talking about love, and he says, you know, this is the spiritual gift that you all need, much more than you need all these other things. So, it's a little bit of a distortion of Pentecost, isn't it? So, the people at Pentecost heard the gospel preached in their own languages from people who had never studied those languages. They didn't hear a bunch of gibberish. And then somebody stand up and say, you know what? What Brother Peter over here said that none of you all could understand. I'm going to explain in proper um, Aramaic or Greek or Latin or whatever they were talking there. So it's a little bit of a distortion. Um, and Pentecostal churches put an emphasis on things like healing, prophecy, and tongues. And I don't want to attack them. The important thing is really not whether they emphasize these things, but whether they have a vibrant relationship with Jesus that's growing. But at the same time, I would say that the power of the church is not focused on signs and wonders. So if we understand miracles in the New Testament, we understand that they come at specific inflection points. So when the apostles laid hands on the Samaritans, they received the Holy Spirit, and they began to speak in tongues. And the same thing happened when Peter laid hands on the people in Cornelius' house, the first time the Gentiles were able to enter the church. And the Jewish believers needed to understand clearly, you know what, these people are Christians. They are followers of Christ, and they are not a second-class sort of Christian until they enter into all the Jewish ways of life. They are real members of the church. And this was a hard thing for them to take. And as a result of these signs and wonders, the message of the church went out and was broadened. So, probably the most important thing is that the signs and wonders brought God's glory. Acts 3, 12, and 13. So when Peter saw it, he responded to the people, Men of Israel, why do you marvel at this? Or why look so intently at us? As though by our own power or godliness we had made this man walk. So this is when Jesus, Peter and John went to pray. You all remember that? And they met a lame man on the way. He held out his palms and asked for alms. And this is what Peter did say. He said, Silver and gold have I none, right? You all, you all know that song. So... So the people were shocked, not um, that Peter said what he did, but they were shocked that the man was healed. And he said, or why look so intently at us as though by our own power or godliness we'd made this man walk? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant, Jesus, whom you delivered up and denied in the presence of Pilate when he was determined to let him go. And so this comes in the context of Peter and John healing the lame man. And 
Peter uses it as a jumping off place to preach a message to the crowd that had gathered. Uh, the end result was two things. Souls were added to the church and God was glorified. Um, so I do think there are a few dangers to emphasizing miracles over much. The first danger is simply that we make them central to the gospel. Jesus did not come to earth to teach us to do miracles. He was not a magician. He was not someone who was just trying to get us to be able to saw people in half and put them back together again. A lot of people mistook his ministry as that. And he had to fight that constantly. Probably each one of us has seen miraculous things happen. We've heard of them, but they are not to be our focus. The second danger is that we deny miracles. So I don't know which of the things that people claim are miracles um, were truly miracles. But I do know that the power of God is still active today. He is still working. And when we pray, things happen. Sometimes amazing things. And if we minimize the power of God, that's a problem too. Probably a final thing that I see is that um, there is a danger in exploitation of miracles. So you all know the story of Simon the Sorcerer in, in Acts. I'm not going to read it. But after, after seeing people receive the Spirit, Simon comes to Peter and he says, you know what? I'm willing to pay some money if I could get this power too. And Peter, Peter spoke pretty harshly to him and said, your money perish with you, which is not a sort of thing you really want to say. But Peter never, um, he didn't think a, a lot about how his words would come across. And he just, you know, he said straight out, you know, this is, this is not what it's about. And I'm afraid there's a lot of people out there that are profiting from their healing ministries, from their, um, uh, just from, I'm going to say their abuse of the gospel message. Um, Benny Hinn is someone who's claimed to have healed thousands of people, but his ministry is a bit questionable. What is certain is that he has gained a lot of financial resources as the result of his work and his healings and, and just, you know, his TV ministry and such. Um, and there's, there's just some questions there. And many other people have similar kinds of things. Um, and I'm reminded of the story of D.L. Moody. So when D.L. Moody went to England, um, he and Iris Sankey didn't like the, they didn't like the, um, the hymns that the, the people were singing over there. Um, and probably, if you, if you read, they, they probably didn't like the kinds of hymns that Milo and I like. So they like more spiritual songs. And you read um, the things that Ira Sankey um, would sing. They were just very um, revival-oriented and things like that. And so anyway, so they went to, they went to these, um, this publishing house, and they said, you know, um, we'd, like to, we'd like to publish an um, inspirational songbook um, and we'll and we'll sell it. Um, and the the publishers said, you know, these songs are all terrible. You know, there's songs like "Let the Lower Lights," um, "Let the Lower Lights 
the shining? Is that burning? Thank you. Um, so anyway, so they're just terrible songs like that. English people would never buy a songbook like this. And so anyway, so D.L. Moody and Iris Sankey took all the money they had and they self-published it. And uh, and it sold out extremely quickly. And once it did, then the local publishers said, oh, of course, well, we'd be glad to publish that for you. And so they ended up selling um, over a million dollars worth of, of these um, songbooks. And at the end of this time, Moody was getting ready to come back to the United States. And the um, publisher said, you know, we've got all this money. Where um, Can we give you a check? Or how do you want us to, to um, get, pay you for this? And Moody said, oh, I, I don't want the money. Um, you just give it to one of the churches over here. And the churches over there said, you know, it's, it's Moody's money. We don't, we don't want it either. Which is interesting. You know, if, if somebody came to our church and said, you know, we've got a million dollars, you'd be like, you know what? <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> anyway, so, so fortunately all was well because they, um, somebody discovered that uh, Moody's home church in Chicago had burned down in the Chicago fire. And so they gave it to the church specifically to help them build uh, a new um, building. So that was a blessing for them. But it says to me that Moody was never about money. That was not his focus. And so often, I think, even if people start well, they can get uh, seduced by the power of money and start using the power of the church for their own gain. And that's a problem. So what is the real power of the church? We're going to go down through a, a number of different things. Um, let's read Ephesians 3, um, verses 14 through 21. Ephesians 3, 14 through 21. For this reason I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might through his Spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length and depth and height to know the love of God which passes knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to exceedingly abundantly, above all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us, to him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. So first thing I would say is that the power of Christ in the church is unlimited. So a lot of times people focus on health and wealth and things like that. Um, and they ignore the fact that Paul is writing to Ephesian Christians who were poor. They were powerless. They had nothing. And they would never have anything. Not in the way that we even have today. And yet at the same time, they had everything. So everything on this earth has limitations, doesn't it? Um, the richest man on earth right now, does anybody know? Yes, Vincent. No, it's not. I, well, it might be. I'm, so, um, so Elon Musk is, is probably second, but he might be first. It depends. But anyway, um, the person who I read was first was Bernard Arnault, who is a French man. But 
regardless, they're they're within a, a billion dollars of each other, so that's close enough, I guess. They're, we'll say they're tied. Um, but if you put both of their fortunes together, it still has limitations. There are things that they could not do. But our Heavenly Father has no limitations. And He has promised to give us exceedingly above all that we ask or think. Does that shake you up this morning? Does that make you think about how powerful your Heavenly Father is? Acts 1, verses 7 and 8. And he, that is Jesus, said to them, It is not for you to know the times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and all Judea and to the end of the earth. So the first thing I would say here is that the church has power to bear witness. So this is the passage that sets the tone for the rest of the book of Acts. Jesus tells the apostles, you know, you are expecting an earthly kingdom. You're still expecting that. But you are going to spread through the whole earth. This message that I have for humanity is not going to be limited to one people, one place, one time. It is going to go throughout all the earth. And the apostles received that charge, and they have passed it down to us. And if we have power this morning, it comes from the presence of the Holy Spirit. Power here is specifically focused on moving through all the world. We know that before the crucifixion, the apostles weren't very brave. Um, but Jesus says, you know what? Do not let the fear of bandits and pirates and storms and dangerous travel and disease Stand in your way. In 2 Corinthians 11, verse 26, Paul said, In journeys often, in perils of water, in perils of robbers, in perils of my own countrymen, in perils of the Gentiles, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren. And I often think, you know, if, if someone wrote a real biography of the Apostle Paul, Put down all the different things. You know, wrote it the way that, you know, biographies are written today. You know, I know we have the Book of Acts. The Book of Acts isn't really a biography. It doesn't have Paul, you know, you know, visiting Corinth and saying something really silly or, you know, the time that, uh, that uh, his ship almost sank and they were pumping water out and they weren't sure if they were going to make harbor or whatever, you know. Um, and in these few verses, we see just... How amazing the Apostle Paul's life was. And it was because of the power of Christ within him that he was able to persevere through all these things. Any one of those things would shake me up, and I'd probably think about stopping. So, power of Christ in the church is to bear witness. Second thing is, the power of God is to salvation. So, First, I'm sorry, Romans 1, verses 16 and 17 says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from face to face, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. So, 
God works through the church. He could have worked in any sort of different way, um, but he chooses to reveal his power through, through a church setting and through people who love each other in this kind of a, a family, in this kind of group. So the power of God is to salvation. More than that, the power of God in the church levels differences between groups. So we don't think of the differences between Greeks and Jews as being a huge deal, but it was a huge deal at that point. The Jews looked down on the Greeks. They were Gentiles. They weren't followers of the Mosaic Law. And the Greeks looked down on everybody who wasn't Greek. You know, so, so what did the, the Romans and Greeks call people who weren't Romans or Greeks? Barbarians. So when you think of barbarian, do you think of someone, um, um, you know, drinking from a teacup with their pinky out? No. No, you think of somebody who looks like Hagar the Horrible, um, who's a Viking or something like that. Galatians 3, 26 through 29 says, For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. And the point here is not that we cease to be whoever we are. We are if you're a man or you're a woman this morning, you will continue to be that even after you become a church member. But within the church, there are not these divisions. The cultural aspects of who we are vanish in our pursuit of holiness. And this is a big deal. I, I took Elise um, to pick up the children from school uh, one afternoon, and Elise has a lot of stuffed animals, and she took the stuffed animals, and she sat them in every single seat in the van. And every single seat was full, except for the one that I was sitting in, and she was sitting in. And when we got to, when we got to school, um, Elliot and Vincent um, tried to get into the back seat and sit down, and they had to move stuffed animals, and this just really upset her, because the seats were full. And she didn't think anybody else should get in the van. Um, I guess she thought we should just go, you know, leave them at school so we could keep the stuffed animals and dolls in the, in the seats. And I sometimes think that we as a church are a little bit like that. You know, all the seats are taken. Let them find some other place. But the power of God is to level differences, to bring us together. Our little church building has limited seating, but God's church is unlimited. The church has the power of unrelenting love. John 13, verses 34 and 35. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this all will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. And I think we have misjudge the power of love. The world values power, brute force, and making people do things. There was a man who met D.L. Moody when Moody was in England 
Um, that man's name was Harry Morehouse. He was in and out of trouble as a youth. He went to jail several times. Um, and he wasn't a very well person. He, he had probably had tuberculosis because he died at a young age. And one day as he was passing by a building, he heard noises inside. And he thought, you know, it sounds like there's some kind of a fight going on inside there. I'll go in and see because he, he likes watching fights. And he went inside, and it was a, it was a Bible meeting. It's kind of funny to think of somebody thinking that a uh, revival meeting was a, was a fight. But anyway, um, he wanted to leave, but he was arrested by the words that he heard there. And he gave his life to, to Christ. And when D.L. Moody was in Dublin, he met Dwight, and he said, you know, I would like to come to Chicago, and I'd like to preach in your church. And, and Moody wasn't particularly impressed. He, um, he said, uh, he didn't tell him he could preach at church, because, I mean, it's sort of an odd thing to walk up to somebody and say, you know, I'd like to come to your church and preach there. Um, but, but Moody said, you know, if you come, um, we'll, we'll put you up. You know, we, you could stay with us. And so... It wasn't too long after that they got a letter saying that Mr. Morehouse had arrived in New York and that he would come out and preach if Moody was still willing, which Moody didn't remember saying that he was willing to have him preach. But anyway, he simply um, telegrammed back that if Harry came west, he could call on him. And a few days later, Moody got a letter saying that Harry Morehouse would be in Chicago next Thursday. And Moody was going to be out of town, and so he told the elders of his church that there was an Englishman by the name of Morehouse who was going to be there, and he guessed maybe they could let him preach Thursday and Friday, but Moody would be back in town on Saturday, and he would take them off their hands then. So it didn't sound like a resounding vote of um, confidence. So when he got back, Moody asked his wife about the preacher. She said, you know, he preaches differently from you. He tells the people that God loves him. Moody said that he went to church Saturday evening determined not to like Terry Morehouse because he preached differently from D.L., but he went away with his mind changed. For six nights in a row, he preached from the text of John 3.16. And Moody said, in closing up that seventh sermon, he said, For seven nights I've been trying to tell you how much God loves you, but this poor stammering tongue of mine will not let me. If I could ascend Jacob's ladder and ask Gabriel who stands in the presence of the Almighty to tell me how much love God the Father has for this poor lost world. All that Gabriel could say would be that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, have everlasting life. I've never forgotten those lives, nights. I have preached a different gospel since, and I've had more power with God and man since then. Up till then, Moody had preached almost entirely on fleeing the wrath of God. But he said that after that, he preached a different message, focused on the love that God had for a poor, lost world. Morehouse died at the age of 40, and on his deathbed, he said, if the Lord were to raise me up and I could preach one more time, I would preach on this text, for God so loved the world. I love this story. If I look back, I think I became a Christian because I was afraid of hell. I was scared of undying flames and of the terror that I would face there. But what keeps me serving Jesus 
with his wonderful love that I cannot measure the height and the depth and the breadth of. It just keeps giving. And when people come into our midst, I hope that they feel the power of the love of God. So the final thing I would like to touch on, well, not the final thing. Um, We'll get there eventually. So the church has a power of loosing and binding. I mentioned this earlier. Um, When Jesus is talking to Peter, he talks about the things that we loose on earth, the things that we bind on earth. And this is a picture that is found in the Jewish Targum, which is some of the, the rabbi writings of the time. A rabbi who declared that something was forbidden by the law, was binding it. And a rabbi had declared that something was allowed, was loosing it. Um, So this is not like the Catholics believe, a symbol of papal inerrancy, but I do think it has the idea that the church has authority in the lives of those who are members of it. And I don't think this should lie in one single individual. It's not that we, you know, have one person who who decides what, what things we do and don't do, but at the same time, while this isn't a popular idea, I think the church should tell us some of what we do and don't do. I think it's healthy for us. The power of signs and wonders. So, you all have probably picked up, but I don't think this is the most important thing. God does signs and wonders in the church, through the church. Um, but if we look back at the early church, Even then, I believe that the miracles are more the exception than the rule. They may have happened more frequently than today, um, partly because of the fact that God was working through the apostles and the church was just beginning. Um, But I don't think that was, even then, their focus. And I do worry a little bit about a focus over much on, on... the works of the Spirit. We'll, we'll use that term. So the idea that, that we have to see just in-your-face kind of manifestations of God's power. Um, there are people who have leveraged that for their own gain. And that, that gives me kind of a sour taste in my mouth as I think about it. Many of the prophets through the charismatic church history have a checkered history of being able to foretell the truth. But the thing that worries me the most is the idea that we are in control, that God has to do what we tell him to do, that we rub the, the lamp and the genie comes out and we are in charge. God has to do what we tell him. We are, we are you know, <laughs> leveraging that power. And, and that is just a pagan way of looking at the power of God. God is so much greater than us. We can't make him do something. And yet he loves us so much that he wants to do things for us. The power of praise. So the book of Acts seems to draw a direct connection between the wonderful things that the people were seeing happening in their own lives and in the church and praise. Acts 2, 46 through 47 says, So continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. I feel like our church group is kind of quiet, and that's probably okay. Um, 
but we have a responsibility to live with joy, don't we? Um, Galen asked the question a while ago um, about um, why Mennonites' joy is unspeakable. Um, I'm sorry, why Mennonites seem so sober? I gave the punchline away. It's because their joy is unspeakable. Um, and so I, I know he was being silly, but I, I'm afraid he was a little accurate in his assessment of the situation. Um, we have difficulty expressing joy. We have difficulty praising. Um, the, the early church had joy. They were alive. They had a community that was pretty amazing. They supported each other. They had a Savior who had given them salvation, and they valued this immensely. Um, and they saw God's power alive and at work. Um, this doesn't mean that they were stress-free. They had lots of stress on them, but at the same time, they saw the church growing. And we would say, you know, they were not filled with joy because God gave them bags of money, because rich people joined the church. Um, they had enough, and their God was sufficient. The final thing that I would like to touch on is that the church helps us have the power to endure. So, Michael Sattler is probably one of the, the more well-known of the early Anabaptists. He had been a monk um, and apparently became extremely discouraged with the corrupt and unsanctified lives of both the monks and the priests. He ended up leaving a monastery and traveling to Zurich, where he met the early Anabaptist leaders, Felix Mons and Conrad Grebel. And he was in prison there and eventually expelled from the city in 1525. And for the next two years, he traveled around um, southern Germany, preaching and teaching about what he saw as the importance of following the scriptures wholeheartedly. And in 1527, he was arrested with 17 other Anabaptist believers. He was placed on trial before 24 judges from the Catholic Church with Count Joachim overseeing. And he was accused of teaching things contrary to church doctrine, that infant baptism was wrong, that extreme unction was non-scriptural, that, um, that it was wrong to go to, to fight with the Turks. And he listened to the accusations against him. And then he said, I would like to have some time. And he sat down and he talked to the other people that were on trial with him. And he stood up after that and he took time and modestly began to speak to the charges against them. And Michael said that he had not spoken ever of revolt against the count or civil authorities, but admitted the rest of the accusations were true and attempted to use scripture to explain the reasons for his, these beliefs. The judges were swift and harsh in their verdict. All of the Anabaptists were sentenced to death, but Michael was given a harsher judgment. He was to have his tongue cut out. Then he was to be forged fast to a wagon, and on the way to be burned multiple times, they were to stop and use hot, glowing iron pincers to tear flesh from his body. He was told that all of this transpired. But though his tongue was cut out, he was still able to speak. And although he was in terrible pain, when he arrived at the place of the execution, he prayed aloud for his judges and admonished the people to repent and be converted. And as the fire rose around him, his voice also rose in prayer and praise to God. And when the fire burned away the ropes that bound his wrists, 
he raised his hands to point to heaven in a signal to his fellow believers that he was holding to the faith. And so he died. Hebrews 10, 20-25 says, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another. And so much the more as you see the day approaching. We need each other. The day is approaching. Satan tells us that we are individuals, that it's about personal relationship, that you don't need a church body around you, that it's all about what you do in your home, in your everyday life. And yet the men and women throughout history who endured persecution did it because they had a community around them who supported them. And when they were in the flames, they felt the prayers from those people. Satan may have changed his tactics today, and we don't suffer persecution in the same way. But we still need each other just as much. The church body has strength. It has power. But it's so different from the power of the world around us that they don't even recognize it. Now, I don't know what the future holds. It may hold terrible persecution. But what I know is that as we place ourselves in the body of Christ and receive spirit-filled encouragement, we will be able to stand against whatever we face. We can stand against anything that Satan can throw at us because God has given us a brotherhood who will pray and encourage and support us. Let's pray. Oh, Lord God, as we think about your power, I just ask that you would work here at Bethel. Make us as a church a little glimpse of what your desire is for the church around the land. And, and I just pray, Lord, that we could minister to people who are in need, that we could love them, that we could stand for what is right. So just be with the rest of the service. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.